When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome. I'm Brendan Wesser and this is New Books in Science Fiction. My guest today is B.L. Blanchard, here to talk about her debut novel, The Peacekeeper, which is out now. Welcome, Brooke. Thank you very much for having me. I'm so excited you're here. Uh, This is a wonderful book I read um, over this past weekend. I think it was one of the perfect times to read it leading up to the summer solstice. Um, It was such a a wonderful read and a really inventive world. But I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what the book is about. Sure. Thank you. Um, it's in, it's my first novel, as you mentioned, and it's an alternate history set in the present day in a North America that was never colonized. And so it's a modern 21st century industrialized indigenous society around what we know as the Great Lakes. Um, and in, it's an Ojibwa nation, which is my heritage and my tribal affiliation. So I wanted to see what what it might have looked like had had colonization never happened. And the plot involves a murder mystery. There's a, a local police officer or a peacekeeper named Chibanashi, who 20 years ago, his mother was murdered in their small town and his father confessed and has been in prison for the last 20 years, which is the harshest punishment available in the justice system in this world. And um, right, it's, it takes place in, it, we open the book in, you know, mid-August and uh, there's another murder and it has some connections to the murder of his mother. And so he is, you know, has to go to the big city. It takes place in Bawitagong, which is what we know in our world as the cities of Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan and Sault Ste. Marie, Canada. It's um, part of right on the upper peninsula of Michigan. Um, and then he, Chibanashi has to go to the big city of Chicago, which it's known in our world as Chicago, as part of the investigation, and he's le- he learns about himself and about his family and about these murders, and that's kind of it in a nutshell. That is a very big nutshell. <laughs> there is so much to unpack in what you just said. I'm so glad that you were the one to explain it because there's so much to this world that I think it's really easy to get caught up on one part of the story versus maybe another part of the story. The, you know, the world itself is just as interesting as the solving of the murder. So what inspired you to put a kind of a murder investigation in a world of North America that hasn't been colonized? You know, I came up with the world first and thought, what would be a good, what would be a good way to to take someone through the world? What, um, because this isn't going to be a dissertation or a history of it. I didn't want to go the route of the years in rice and salt, which is an excellent book that also imagines um, a world where North America there was no colonization by Europe. But that book takes you through about you know, about 500 years of, of alternate history. I wanted to do something much smaller than that broad scope. And um, I have small children. So I was watching a lot of Zootopia, which is a Disney movie. And I kind of, what's what, it's a great Disney movie. And it's, um, 
it, there's a, it, it involves a rabbit who's going to the big city of Zootopia to be their first rabbit police officer. And she gets involved in a missing, it's a missing person, missing animal case. But the investigation kind of gives the story an excuse to go through the entire city. And so you get to see its criminal underworld, you get to see government functions and kind of everything in between. So I thought, you know, that might not be a bad way to do it here. And um, I've always loved murder mysteries. So I came up with that plot as a way to kind of go through it. And once I came up with it, I really started developing the characters and really fell in love with with them and writing about them. So um, yeah, it's kind of weird. But yes, that part was inspired by a Disney movie. I mean, it's not every day that a uh, a murder mystery book is inspired by a Disney movie, so. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> so awards to you for being a first. Uh, I'm, I'm fairly certain that's, that's a first. Um, and I think it's fascinating what you just said, because I think this idea of being able to explore the world through... Um, this particular kind of investigation is really interesting. I did not realize that, uh, is it Chibinashi? Is that how you say it? That's how I say it. I will. I, I do not speak Ojibwa myself. Um, my dad does. I've never learned how to do it. So I'm sure I may be mispronouncing it, but that's that's how I've been pronouncing it. Okay. All right. No, that's fine. Uh, my father says I can't pronounce my last name. Um, we're French Canadian. so. That's fine. You go with what you've decided and it's your world. So I think you're allowed those props. <laughs> Thanks. But I was really uh, fascinated from the change from kind of the rural town that he's in because I didn't realize he was going to go to the big city to, <laughs> to solve this this case. And I, I thought, what a wonderful way to explore it. Um, and even some of the changes between the two different um, kind of communities or the way that society is, is set up, which leads me to a, an interesting question about, um, you know, this is an alternate history. And just like we see in other stories, there are different systems that change. And one of the things that's fascinating to me is how you've written the law system um, and how society works and handles when things go awry, right? I, I don't know that you use the term criminals in the book, but it's what we might think of as criminals in, in our society right now. Um, I'm curious about what inspired the system and if any of kind of your real life experience is woven into the reimagining. Yes, it is. Um, I guess it comes from a couple places. By by trade, I'm a lawyer, so um, I'm not a criminal lawyer, but um, I've done a lot of pro bono work for the Innocence Project and interned for the public defender in law school and actually planned to be a public defender. So that was always some, that was something already near and dear to my heart. Um, and like our the main character in this book, I am the child of someone who went to prison. And so I have the perspective of what it's like to be um, affected by crime when you are not the direct victim, but you are the child of someone who's been incarcerated. And that's not a perspective that you see it done a lot, but I I, I think I've seen it done a lot by people who I, I don't think have that personal experience because I think you would approach it very differently. So um, wanted to kind of show a better a better way of, of uh, dispensing justice. Um, and um, so I, I, in this novel, there's a kind of an alternate system of, of criminal, um, I, I don't want to call it criminal justice, but I can't think of a better word for it. And um, it's inspired by a couple of different things. One is, uh, and it's more of a mediation. So you get what is called the victim and the accused, and they have a mediator who tries to reach a resolution of what will make the victim whole, as opposed, so it's focused on what does the victim need versus punishing the accused, which is very much the focus of the system that we use in the United States and much of the world. So the system in the book is inspired by a couple of different things. The first is that's how most civil cases in the United States are resolved. Um, people file lawsuits, but, and I'm a civil lawyer, um, most of them will be resolved through informal settlement. Um, I was a trial lawyer for eight years. I had one trial in those eight years. That's how frequently it happens. Um, 
I've had, I had many cases come close, but the majority of them were resolved informally. Um, so that's part of it. The other is um, I was inspired by Navajo peacemaking courts. Those are the justice system um, in the Navajo Nation. I won't pretend to be an expert at it, but um, it uses a similar system, which again, the focus is on making the victim whole. So that's putting kind of those two things together. I thought that might be an interesting way of exploring it. If you were to shift the spot spotlight from punishment to restitution, um, away from what, how are we going to make this bad person pay for the bad things they did and focused on, well, you're the one who's affected. What do you want? What would make you whole again? I think that would really shift a lot of the paradigms, not just in the criminal system, but also society as a whole. That is a beautiful answer. And I think it's, it's not just a beautiful answer. I think it's it's something that, again, because you're telling the story, we get to see it from so many different perspectives, um, from so many of the different characters as well. Um, so it feels like a a wholly thought out system, and it's and you look at it with a critical eye in some cases as well. So it's not this the system that you're holding up is kind of perfect and wonderful. You also look at it and write it with some, with a critical eye as to there might be some challenges in this as well. Correct. Cause no society is perfect. And I thought if I wrote utopia, people would probably set it down and say, that sounds fake. Um, it's, it definitely is, is aspirational. I mean, it definitely, I think in a lot of ways is an improvement on, you know, the modern Western society that, many of us are familiar with. Um, but it's it's not perfect. We do there's another case where that works its way through the system sort of parallel with the main one and we see it go awry and we see the system fail people. And but it, I think it fails it in a different way than we see now. So you know, one thing I wanted to do in this world is show like look, we're whatever timeline we're in, we're humans and humans make imperfect systems. It's part of our nature. There's no perfect society in the world. Uh, there's, you know, people may romanticize certain societies. I think Native American societies are, are, are very, can have the potential to be romanticized in fiction. And I wanted to show, look, this is not going to be perfect. Um, and no system of justice probably is going to be perfect. People will fall through the cracks. And in this book, we see a, a victim get um, if, you know, justice will fail a victim and justice will fail an accused. Um, but, you know, to show that it can be improved upon and perfection is always something we will, as a species, probably be working toward forever, as long as we have society. I didn't realize that we were going to get so deep in our conversations <laughs> during this, during our time together today. But, um, but no, that's, it's beautiful. It's deep. I don't know. I keep saying beautiful because I just, I, I really like your acknowledgement, too, of how we can fall into traps as, uh, you know, readers or, or writers of romanticizing stories. You know, we want to see more and more in representation or in different ideas of how worlds can be represented. But it's also possible to get lost in that romanticized view. So this idea that you were purposefully trying to build uh, the story and think about it from that perspective of, you know, we're not trying to make a utopia here. <laughs> we're trying to make a, a civilization and a world and a society that, that feels real. And I, I think that's, that, comes, that definitely comes across. So you've done a good job there. <laughs> Thank you. I, I I always remember that scene, and it's one of the Matrixes. It might be the first Matrix movie where Agent Smith is saying, you know, the first Matrix that was ever built was perfect, and every humans rejected it because they just couldn't. It it just did not click with our programming, and I think that's really true in fiction as well. If you if you make it perfect, not only do you not have much in the way of conflict, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm just too cynical a person to create to write a world where everything goes right, but. There you go. Hey, there's nothing wrong with that. You want to make sure people are reading your book. If it's perfect, then who's going to read your book? <laughs> I'd probably just sit down and say, yeah, that doesn't sound right. So in thinking of this world, um, it, it you had mentioned um, that uh, Chimanashi uh, travels to the big city of what we, we now think of as Chicago. Was 
the setting of the Great Lakes always something that you had in mind? Or how did you end up choosing that as the backdrop, kind of the focal point, really, of the civilization? Uh, For a couple of reasons. Um, I'm from the Upper Peninsula, originally from Sault Ste. Marie, which is Bawitagong in in the book. So I did want to, it's not a place often represented by fiction. Um, We were all very excited when uh, Firekeeper's Daughter was published um, about a year ago, year and a half ago. Because it, the entire novel takes place in Sault Ste. Marie, we call it the Sioux, and it's um, it's a place that most people like. If you watch it, you know, and uh, people draw pictures or draw maps, a lot of times the Upper Peninsula is just not even there. Um, so you'll just kind of have one giant, you know, Lake Superior blending into Lake Michigan. So I wanted to set it there because that's a place near and dear to my heart. I've lived in California most of my life, but. Um, the UP will always always be home in a lot of ways. So that's one reason. The other is that is the ancestral home of the Anishinaabe, which is the Chippewa, Ojibwas, how we're commonly referred to. So I thought realistically, if you were to have a never colonized world, what is the land that would be theirs? And now the entire Great Lakes region would not have been the Anishinaabe. There's uh, you know, a number of different nations that called home there. And that was something I wanted to explore as well, that a lot of these nations and tribes had conflict with each other. Um, there's a scene where our hero is on the the monorail in Chicago and he's looking around and he sees there's a Lakota person on the train. And it's, it's just a fleeting thing, but there was historically a lot of animosity between those two people. So I wanted to show that there's kind of still some lingering hostility toward them. Um, there were, you know, there were many tribes as well, like the Miami or the Miami is what they're called in Ojibwa. Um, and one of the main characters is Miami. And he says, you know, points that out and says, I, our people, you know, this was our land initially, the Chicago, the Chicago area, and you conquered it and you're, and we're kind of being erased as a result. And Chibanashi's taken aback because he's never really heard that before. Um, you know, it's a world without overseas colonization, but I, I do think it's, you know, humans have always, will always, always have, and probably always will fight with their neighbors over, over territory in this, this world would be no different. But, um, so I guess it was a combination of this is where I'm originally from. Um, you don't see much fiction set in this part of the world, but also if you were to show a never colonized North America and you wanted to show it from the Anishinaabe, um, perspective, this is really where it would happen. All right. Interesting. So what would be kind of the the closest next big city in this in this world outside of Chicago? Yes. Um, well, I want to put a plug in for the book. It has a map and I really, I'm such a map nerd. This was so important to me to have a map, a map in there. So we, we show a few things. Um, uh, probably the biggest nearest one is Cahokia, which was a real pre-Columbian city, it, very close to what we know as St. Louis. Um, so that's re- mentioned in passing. Basically what we know as Toronto was also, um, a pre-Columbian city. So that's, that's in the book as well. Um, and in the, on the map, you'll see some other places like, um, Manahata, which is what we know as New York. Um, Okabo'oge is what we know as Santa Fe. Um, and, um, you know, Tenochtitlan, which is Mexico city. So lots of, you know, I didn't invent the concept of a, an indigenous city. There were many of them prior to colonization. And so, yeah, but I guess the nearest one would be the very real historical city of Cahokia. I have to say, I'm jealous. I read the Kindle version, and there was no map. There was no map? Oh. All right. It's possible that I... No, I read the Kindle version. I was going to say, we had a couple versions here in the house, and I believe I read the Kindle version, and there was no map. That bothers me, because I think the map is... I, um, I have a blog post coming out on... Um, Mary Robinette Kowal's My Favorite Bit, and it's all about how the map kind of functions as a prologue. You get about 500 years of, of history just in a single image um, because it shows, it, it takes the map that we all are familiar with, literally flips it on its side, um, and it appears sideways to how we normally orient a map because in Anishinaabe tradition, the maps were oriented toward the east, which I learned in my research was the way most maps were um, oriented until around the 15th century. And it's more by um, 
by custom than anything else that maps are oriented toward the north. And so it literally shows we're, we're showing you from a new perspective and it has a familiar map with unfamiliar to a lot of people names on them and how that kind of gives you a, some background of what the world looks like. And then you, you get to dive into the story itself. I'm stunned to silence because one of my questions was asking about a map because I saw no map. And now you're telling me that not only is there a map, it's also reorienting us and really just changing our perspective based upon all of this research that you incorporated into the book. Well, I will send you a copy of the map. I have seen the there is the the version that is currently available as an ebook does have the map on it. Um, but so we'll, I'll make sure you get one. But yeah, I, I have been telling people that I think coming up with the map took almost as long as writing the manuscript because of all the research that went into it. Um, in terms of not just finding what peoples belong where, but also what the appropriate name is. Because most tribes are not known by the names they call themselves. Most tribes are known by names that they were called by other tribes. And through hundreds of years, like a really weird game of telephone, we, you know, my tribe is known as Chippewa, but it should be Anishinaabe. That's very you know, how you get from one to the other is really complex. And that's true of every, just about every tribe on there. So that's what I, you know, that took a long time to make sure I was finding the correct name and the correct location. And then you can't fit. I mean, we have 573-ish federally recognized tribes just in the U.S. um, alone, not counting those in Mexico or Canada or, you know, Central America. So figuring out what would be representative, what would give readers a good flavor for the world. All that took a long time. And it was really fun because I'm a nerd and that's my hobby is maps. So did you get to be involved with like the artist who was who was working on the map or did you have any say in, in that kind of aspect? I got I gave feedback as to the style of map and I what I had done is I got a blank map of North and South America and I filled it in and then a real artist drew it. So, um, you know, maybe someday I'll show sort of what my hand-drawn version of it was, but the the finished product is is far prettier and far better than what I had done on my own. They did a wonderful job with it. I mean, I think that's how all maps get started, though. I think uh, writers take a map and, you know, mock things up and they say, please help me, artist. <laughs> I definitely needed some help. This is, Matt, cartography is apparently not a skill that I have. Oh, well... Maybe we'll be the judge of that when you share the images from your map. We'll compare them side by side. We'll maybe we'll vote on it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, so a lot of, I think a, a lot of the buzz around this book is about, you know, both the world that it's set in as well as the story. Um, How do you feel about that? Do you like the fact that people are, you know, you're getting people to talk about, you know, thinking about this amazing world and maybe thinking about what it could have looked like um, without European colonization? Or would you, do you wish that people would, you know, maybe focus on the story and the characters more? Do you have a a feeling about that? I'm really thrilled that, People are are using this as a spring, you know, to kind of think critically about what the world could have looked like more differently. Because I think, you know, it, it's very soft world building. Like at no point does any character sit down and say, oh, man, wouldn't it have been terrible if there had been overseas colonization and we were all victims of a genocide? Boy, that would have been rough. Like no one's no one sits down and, and says that there's never a direct contrast. Um which, you know, makes sense. We don't sit around usually and say, oh, boy, aren't we glad some terrible thing never happened to us? And wouldn't that have looked crazy? So um, I'm I'm really happy people are thinking about it. One thing that I, I have been asked a lot is, well, how did it happen? And I don't the book doesn't go into how colonization was avoided. And that's kind of deliberate. Like I kind of have my theory internally as to what happened. But I think what's more important is, you know, if if I were to ask, you know, five different people, okay, if col- if there were no European colonization of North America, what do you think the reason would have been and what do you think the impact would have been on the rest of the world? 
I mean, I, I expect I would get a different answer from every single person. And I think that's kind of important to think about that. I, this timeline was not inevitable. Um, and I've mentioned this elsewhere. I used to really enjoy, I think it was on discovery channel or something like that. It was a show called seconds from disaster and it was a nonfiction documentary show and it would take really well-known disasters like the challenger disaster, the, I think they did one on the Titanic. There was one about, you know, a mall, um, collapsing or a, a walkway at a hotel. And it talks about how it's not just one thing, like, uh, like a series of things have to go wrong for a major disaster to happen. And I think that this is really no different, um, that with, you know, if you change two or three things in history, you, you end up with an entirely different timeline. And so, um, I, I've, liked how people are thinking about it. I, I am, and I, I know I'm not the first person to consider this type of alternate world. I, I certainly hope I'm not the last. And I hope that we'll see a lot of other writers attempt, you know, their version of what the world could have looked like. Cause I bet we'll get some really interesting takes on it. And I think the only limit is really our, our imagination. I, I kind of started from what I wanted the finished product to look like and kind of worked my way backwards of, you know, was, could this have happened? And yes, I, I'm satisfied that it could have. Um, but there are other ways it could be done. I spent just a, a, a full year, probably even more than a year, just kind of planning out the world in my head. And if you want a thought experiment that'll occupy you for years, this is a good one because I I tried doing it chronologically. You know, if this didn't happen, well, then what's the impact here? And what does the rest of the world look like? And, um, you know, it, it's it's a fascinating thing to to think about. And, um, you know, I, I know I've spoken to people who've thought about this their entire lives. Um, and I've spoken to people who never thought of it before they heard about my book. And so the more, the more critical thinking, the better in my opinion. And, um, you know, the more, the more we think about it, the maybe the more we think about what we could change in our world for the better. No, I think that's such a great point. And, you know, even just from, from my experience, I'm over here in New England. So in the United States, um, up in New England, and, you know, I'm surrounded by history. Um, you know, our bodies of water carry names like Winnipesaukee and Piscataquag and their reminders of the people who were here before colonization um, and who, you know, they are still here as well, but not as, as they once were. But it's, you know, growing up, we didn't hear a ton. So it's, but it's, there are things that we've just kind of grown up with. Like when you're, you know, getting used to the roads all called Main Street, you don't really think too deeply about what came behind it. So I think that's another thing about your book is it really gives us a moment to pause and think about those things that may be commonplace for some of us um, and it's part of our surroundings. And then for others who haven't really been exposed or thought about it before, um, I think it's it's just a, a great story that allows us all to kind of expand upon this and join you in your thought experiment. Yeah, it's it's fun to you know, I think it's we're all you know, it's we're all well served by having thoughts uh, or considering did things have to happen the way they did? Why did they happen and how can we fix it? And I think a lot of especially in the last 2 years there's been a lot of discussion about you know, um how do we how do we repair the damage of hundreds of years of slavery and colonization and imperialism and and you know it's a very it's a very hard thing to unwind um and you know it if some people do find it inaccessible um one piece of feedback i've gotten on the book is people find the names difficult to pronounce and i'm like yeah they probably are um it's not a language i invented so um you know there you go. That's part of what you're signing up for. But I think that um, that unfamiliarity is is good um, because it does force a reader to get out of their comfort zone a little bit. And um, yeah, I hopefully it, it seems to not have been insurmountable for most people. But I, that is some feedback that I've gotten. And one was from my, my mom who said, you know, I just I had a hard time pronouncing the names. And I said, well, 
I don't know what you want. <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. I, I can't give them English names. So, um, you know, it is what it is. I did try to come up with names that I thought would be easy for non Ojibwe speakers to to um, to pronounce. Um, and I did try to have each character's name start with a different letter of the alphabet. Just if if pronouncing it was too difficult, you would at least know, okay, Chip Benashi is the one that starts with a C and his fellow peacekeeper in Chicago is Tecumwa. That's the one that starts with a T. But, you know, it, I, I acknowledge it can be, it can be difficult. It can be difficult. But again, you know, many readers of, you know, alt history are also have tried a fantasy novel or maybe, you know, another science fiction or science fiction novel, rather. Um, You know, many folks are, you know, well versed in Game of Thrones at this point. So I think I think they can handle the the differences in names in your book. (laughs) I'm, I'm trying to remember who it was. But it was someone who was told their name was unpronounceable and they wanted to come up with like a, an easier English name for people to use. And their mother saying, if people can learn how to pronounce Tchaikovsky, they can pronounce they can learn to pronounce yours as well. And I thought that was a really good attitude to have. Um, my husband has a name that people he's from uh, Middle East and he has a name that some people find hard to pronounce. But, you know, it's it's certainly doable. And um my, that's my one regret about the, the audiobook was so well done, but I never gave the narrator a pronunciation guide for my husband's name to read in the dedication. And so it's pronounced incorrectly. Um, and that's you know, the one thing I, I didn't think to address with anybody. So I feel bad about that. Oh, my goodness. I feel for you right there because <laughs> you're like, here's the pronunciation guide for everyone else. And then that's right. They're going to read the acknowledgments. Oh, my goodness. You know, it's my first novel. I learned something, and so, and and I don't mean to cat. No shade on the narrator, uh, Daryl Dennis. He did a fantastic job um, of narrating the audiobook, and that that's on me for not providing guidance on how to pronounce his name. But he, he, to be clear, he did a fantastic job. And if audiobooks are are your thing, it's a really great way to experience the book. Excellent, excellent, and help with some of the pronunciation too. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> I don't know if we got it 100% correct, but we we tried. I think that's good enough. If you're happy with it, then everybody else should be happy with it. We'll do our we did our best, but yeah. Oh, I know what it was. So you were talking about this great thought experiment of the world and I think, you know, many folks when they're building a world, we only get to see a small slice of it in their writing. Um, You know, maybe you've built up notebooks full of details or um, backstory or history or or whatever the case may be. Um, Did you find that you were doing that with this particular book? Oh, yes, Um, very much so. Um, A big part of it was this is the sort of thing that would have implications, not just for the Americas. If there's no new world colonization, there's probably no colonization, there's no, probably no colonization overseas anywhere else. Um, my takeaway from the research I did is that col- colonial powers needed the wealth from the n- new world colonies to power their colonization efforts elsewhere. So what the rest, you know, I thought that would have implications on the map of Europe, uh, the map of every other continent on earth. Um, and a lot of that, I mean, there's a little bit of a reference to it. Uh, Chicago is meant to be sort of a, a multinational, um, very cosmopolitan city with people from all over the world. So you get little hints of it, but there's a lot I developed for the rest of the world that never made it in. Some of it will be in the, the second book. So the, the second book is called The Mother and it'll be out in May of 2023. And it's it's set in this universe, but it's a different cast of characters and plot. And it's set in a Europe that never had colonies. And so what Europe looks like different, what's different about life there and um, the society and the value system and all of that is, is I think impacted by this. So that, but that is a big thing is kind of what the rest of the world looks like. And that's something I've been asked a lot as well. If you, if you want to, if I can plug the second book that some of those questions will be answered there as well. Um, so that's a big one. The economic system we get into a little bit, but not in any 
great detail transportation systems you know we know what they look like kind of locally um but you know i was asked are there airplanes in this world because we don't see them you know and i think there are but not to the degree we probably rely on them now um yeah i'm just trying to think of what else we came up with that is not and um it did not actually make its way into the book um that was the big one ever, you know, the rest of the, of the world, the rest of frankly, North America, we see the map, but we don't get into a ton of what, you know, those cities look like. Um, uh, we look a little bit at the sports scene. Um, one thing that I had not known until I started researching this is that lacrosse is an Ojibwa sport. Um, it's one that I certainly, I had not no idea growing up that that was the case. Um, probably should have, but didn't. Um, so we look a little bit at sports, but we don't really get into entertainment. Like we see like TV exists in this world, but um, you know, whether people, whether there's mass entertainment, music, um, movies, things like that, do you have, you know, I don't think it would be like the world today where if there's a movie released in the U S it's released everywhere else as well. Um, so just stuff like that, that didn't quite, get into, but I, I did kind of focus more of the world building on the things that I knew would come up with in the story. Um, and the other things are not quite as well, were, or at least were not quite as well developed unless I thought I needed to use them. Is there a, a detail that you fell in love with when you were building this world that you, you had to put into the book? Including lacrosse, I thought was and it's in it. It's uh, Anishinaabe name in the book, and I'm. I can try to pronounce it. We can do a whole separate episode where you're just pronouncing things from the book. <laughs> I know. I'm not. You know. I'm not going to make the attempt. Um, but that was one that I thought was really important to show that you know something that I think a lot of people tend to associate with, you know, sort of white Ivy League boys. Um, at least that's the image of lacrosse I always had growing up, um, actually has a very different um, origin. And its origin is largely unknown. I mean, I, I grew up Chippewa and I didn't, and I was largely, I grew, the way I was raised, I was separate from um, my father's side of the family for much of my childhood. Um, and they're the Chippewa side of my family. So I didn't get to really connect with this aspect of my ancestry until I was an adult. Um, but that's something that I thought was important and I really wanted to include in the book. Um, and I found a good opportunity for it. Um, one of my favorite relationships in the book is between Chibanashi, our, our main character, our peacekeeper from Bawitigong and the peacekeeper Takamwa, who is from Chicago. And Chibanashi is a very reserved, he's got years of trauma under his belt. He's um, kind of cantankerous, very um, introverted. And Takamwa is his worst nightmare who, you know, basically walks up like, hello, my new best friend. Let's, let's, and he just, let's go hang, be best friends together while we solve this. And he's very talkative and very extroverted. And he's very, you know, there's a scene where the two of them are having dinner and they're at kind of a sports bar and they see a game on TV and Chibanashi could not care less about what's happening, but to come what keeps kind of losing track of the conversation. Cause he's so invested in the game that he's watching and he's high-fiving strangers when his team wins. And just, I thought it was a fun character moment, but also a good way to showcase this part of the world that I thought was interesting. I have to say, I love his character as a fellow extrovert. Um, it was, it was, it was so good to see that moment of just trying to bring a little levity um, to, you know, a story that is very dark and the main character who is is lost. And I think I, I read one of the one of the words broken in a lot of ways. So it was really nice to see this this fresh face trying to, you know, help him kind of out of his shell a little bit and to try to imagine what his life maybe could be or another way um, that it could be. So such a great character in a lot of ways and not just because he's an extrovert. <laughs> he was one of my favorites too. And of all the characters in the book, he has the 
most similar personality to mine. And so I thought, man, if you if you just want to have peace and quiet and be left alone, someone like me coming up and wanting to know your life story and just talk your ear off is probably your worst nightmare. And, you know, when writing a book, um, you know, just keep imagining what's the worst thing that could happen to your character and then keep doing that to your character. Um, for Chibanashi, it's not only do I have to go to this city that I hate and don't want to be here, I have to be with the kind of person who drives me crazy and I can't avoid him. Um, one of my favorite little moments is, um, Chibanashi kind of, he's up, it's time to go. There's a knock on his door for where he's staying first thing in the morning. He opens it and it's Takamwa, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed. Here's your coffee, new best friend. And he just grabs the coffee, slams the door and Takamwa's face like, I can't deal with you yet. And um, it's a bit extreme. He's, you know, I think Chibanashi's a hard person to like, but that was a moment I really enjoyed. And, you know, later on Takamwa's like, yeah, no problem. I, I arrived too early anyway. Let's go. Let's go solve this crime. And um, yeah, I I just thought, oh, this poor guy, I've, I've given him the worst, the worst possible, um, for his, the, the person who drives him crazy, but I also think kind of the personality type he needed to be around to help him get to the point where he could solve this case. Yeah. It's so funny that you picked that moment because I was just about to say, I love that moment between the two of them. He slams the door and then takes a shower, gets ready and comes back and he's still at the door. <laughs> I thought if if um if basically if you had like a cat and a dog personality wise had to solve a crime together it would be these two. That is so great. I love it. I love that you love it too because I I have this soft spot. So I just it's so great to hear you say that. And then it looks like we're starting to kind of wrap up our time here, but I did have a question in this book there are a lot of themes around caretaking and, you know, you're a mom. Um, so I'm not, you know, you're a mom and I'm sure there have been other caretakers in your life as well. And just this theme that comes about community as a caretaker, personal interactions, people who maybe aren't your biological family taking care of you, a big component of, you know, a brother taking care of his sister, and even just what we just talked about, some of these friendships and the caretaking that happens. Um, was that kind of, was that a conscious choice to kind of have those themes of t- caretaking and those different aspects appear throughout the book? Or was that just part of how the story evolved? Uh, part of it was due to how the story evolved, but um, community is very important in Anishinaabe culture, that everyone's sort of one big family. And um, for the for this story, I had to think of a way, how could two people be isolated in a, in a culture where, you know, everyone is, you know, con- part of the community and the community takes care of one another. So that I thought would be, it was a source of conflict from the beginning of kind of how these two are, are separated in a way that's really unusual. Um, and you kind of, and you know, it's something that they kind of did to themselves uh, by choice and um, you know, wanting to find your place in a community where you feel like you can't belong f- and for, you know, for a variety of reasons, um, they kind of could not participate in the in the wider community despite many attempts to bring them in. Um, so part of that is, you know, I think that's kind of a universal feeling that we've all been through is feeling isolated and like we didn't belong in a larger situation. And so, you know, finding your way into a world that maybe doesn't feel like it has a spot for you or where you feel like you can't participate, um, I think is, again, something we've most of us have probably experienced at one time or another. And so that's, you know, in his, in our, you know, his character journey, getting him to the point where he could feel like he could connect with others and trust others and rely on others is big. Um, but I, I also wanted to show that this is, you know, him kind of going against the grain culturally in a way that is hurting him. Um, you know, one thing that you see a lot in media and, and fiction is sort of the solo hero um, who goes it alone and only wants to be alone. And that I, just thought was probably didn't work for me as a person, didn't work for these characters. And I thought, you know, really only when, and we are very, you know, communal, you know, uh, humans are very communal. Um, That's what I think has allowed us to thrive as our community. And so as we drift more and more apart from each other, I think you're seeing the implications of that. So I wanted to show how opening yourself up to being part of the community is 
you know, helps him solve the crime. It also helps him as a person and um, heal in the way that he needs to. And so that was, that was very important to, to show. I think you just gave us a spoiler that he solves the crime. <laughs> that's a, that's one of the rules in a murder mystery. The murder must be solved. There's a very famous one where the where there's a mystery that isn't solved, and it still drives me crazy <gasps> that it isn't. Um, I won't say which one because it's a very famous and popular one, but it has always driven me crazy that it was never solved. Um, so it, you know, that's like saying, oh, you've sol- Poirot will solve the the mystery in a an Ag- Agatha Christie novel, or Sherlock Holmes will figure it out. That's that's an expectation. I think I would have. Uh, so, spoiler: it's, it's uh, you do get a, an answer to to who do- who done it. All right, everyone, you heard it here first. It's not really a spoiler, but in case you were hoping <laughs> that everything was going to be turned on its head, including whether you would know, <laughs> you do know. You do know. Um, I'm glad we can yes. confirm that. That is. An exclusive. You heard it right here. Murder mystery as resolution at the end. Well, speaking of, you mentioned that you are that you have another book coming out. Are you still working on it, and it has a publication date, or is it kind of off and ready to be released into the world next year? I really wish it was off and ready. No, I'm still finishing it. Um, it's due to my editor in a couple of weeks, but it's uh, it's the second uh, book in this universe. I would love to write another story set in the world of um, in Mbawi Tagong and with these characters. And when I have a story for them, I will write it. Yeah. My view is that everyone's kind of arc was written to completion here, but I really hope I come up with a story for them. But what I wanted to explore was sort of the other side of the world. If you saw how the colonized world looks without colonization, what does the colonizer world look like if they did not have colonies? And so that's, um, sort of the back the backdrop of the second book and that one um like i said it's almost finished and ready to go to my editor but um not there yet but boy i wish i could say that i know it's every writer's dream yes it's off is this another murder mystery book or are we going to get to view non-colonized europe that's probably not the way to to say it but europe as um how are we going to get a chance to kind of explore the world? Is it through a murder mystery or some other interesting plot? It is not going to be through a murder mystery. It's uh, this one is someone is running and being chased. And so it will take them. It's the book starts in England and England, not Great Britain. That's one of the many changes and um, takes them through other parts of continental Europe. And so if, kind of for me it started with the question of what is what is if you didn't have the british empire what does britain look like today and um you know i think and what is the impact on the rest of europe and i if you know that one is also hopefully going to open with a map i have drawn one um haven't gotten confirmation from the publisher that we'll include one but i my hope is that we will and that will also give i think some background as to how colonization didn't happen like you'll see some some changes to the map that if you're a history buff, you might say, Oh, okay. That makes sense that you wouldn't have new world colonies if, you know, X, Y, Z happened. So um, it's more of a, I hesitate to call it a thriller, but it, it is more of a, someone is running and being chased and it's, it's taking them through various places. And we hit three or four countries in total as part of this plot. So I'm, and it, it's called the mother. Um, so motherhood and parent-child relationships are very important in in this book. And so it's it's uh, I, I'm and it, it's very different. But I think I think people will find it interesting. If your question is, well, what did what happened to Europe? You're you're going to get your answer. I can already see as you're talking about this next book, it on the big screen or the or a small screen, really, and just kind of, now I really want, I hadn't really thought about this, but now I really want, but don't want, oh, I can't decide now, to see these uh, these stories in this universe come to life. Have you thought about, have you spent any time thinking about that? Like wanting to see what this would like look like on like a movie or a TV series? Oh, you and me both. I would love to see this in world. I, w- my dream would be that the, there would be a TV series set in uh, Minoaki, which is the the name of the nation, um, the Great Lakes nation that's Anishinaabe. But 
not necessarily limited to this one story and sort of just, you know, you have this particular plot, but you could go and expand beyond that. That would, and again, if (laughs) I'm out, I'm still trying to think of a a good story, next story to tell in this particular nation, but um, I've got some nuggets of ideas, but nothing fully, fully fleshed out yet. Um, But that's what I would love to see is just a nice in-depth exploration of, of the world and, and seeing what it looks like. And, you know, I would love other people's ideas for what it looks like as well. Um, because, um, it's just, like I said, kind of a fun, fun thing to think about and explore. Excellent. Well, the follow-up to this question though, you know, you know, it's coming whenever we ask about, uh, or whenever you're asked about if you'd like to see it on the big screen or, or a series, do you have any actors in mind that you would like to see? You know, I always, I, Chibanashi has been hard for me to cast in my mind, but I've always known who I wanted to play his father. And it's Zon McLarnan, who he's an actor who I think would really do a good job of playing his father. So, but other than that, I really haven't done a whole lot of casting for it in my mind, but that's, he's always one who I thought would, would really be good in that particular role. All right. I've just looked up. Zahn McLaren, McLaren, and I can see it. I can see it. All right. Well, with that, I just have to say it's been such a pleasure having you on today. It's such a great way. We're actually recording this on the summer solstice, so it's such a, a great way to kind of kick back and think of this story that begins in August and be able to talk about uh, this world that you've been, built, these characters, and even this kind of sneak peek at what you are planning on bringing us next year. So, Brooke, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to to chat. Oh, thank you for having me and for letting me be part of the very first podcast, first episode of this podcast. And um, thank you for, for having excellent, me. Excellent. Excellent. I'm so excited. Well, just as a, a quick note there, this is an ongoing podcast, but it is my first time hosting. And I'm so glad that we were able to have Brooke on today. In case you were wondering, I have been speaking with Brooke Blanchard, known as Be Out Blanchard. The book, The Peacekeeper, came out out in June of 2022 from 47 North. If you've enjoyed today's chat, I invite you to subscribe to be the first to know the new books in science fiction. I'm Brendan Wesser, host of this week's episode. Our theme music was composed by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. Rob Wolf edits the show regularly. Marshall Poe is the editor and founder of the New Books Network with Leanne Wilson as co-editor. Thank you so much for listening. Take care. 